Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Hunter. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 42. Uh, and finally, if you have any questions, we love answering those. We're actually answering two today, so it'll be pretty exciting. But we love being able to take time to answer. You can email us questions at the email address info at grove.church. Just make sure to put in the subject line that is a podcast question. Uh, you can also direct message the Grove Church social media pages. Again, just make sure you clarify that it's a podcast question. That way it gets sent to the proper channels because sometimes if, if you don't specify, it just kind of, it maybe it gets answered and that's not what you want. You don't want text answers. You want answers on the podcast where it's more fun. So I don't know. Maybe that's not what actually what you think, but it is what it is. Uh, Hunter, welcome back. Thank you. This is your second podcast. Oh no, well, third, third, third overall. Third total. Yeah. Right. Second one this year. So I guess we don't need to reintroduce you to people. Yeah. So. We can just uh, we can just get started on the Old Testament. Yes. Okay. Well, so now that that whole golden calf situation from last week is settled, I mean settled at least in the fact that it's not going to be brought up for a little bit, but that's going to be throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. God will bring that up quite a few times because he's he is rightfully very peeved that the people that's of Israel true. went and did that. So uh, it's time for the Israelites to move on. And when I mean move on, I mean not necessarily emotionally, although that would probably be healthy. I mean, it's time to pack up and physically move from where they are. Uh, so Yahweh tells Moses to head towards the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. Uh, God also tells Moses that he is not going with them right now. Because again, even after you know forgiveness, God is still really peeved about this whole golden calf situation. So he's going to send an angel instead. And the, basically the reason is God's like, if I actually dwelt, if I, if my presence was among the people, I would just kill them all. So, and, and you know, kudos to, uh, like God knows, God knows himself obviously because he's eternal and he, uh, he has a very good idea of himself. He's like, yeah, listen, Moses, this isn't the time. This isn't the time for my presence to be among the people. Uh, so it's at this time that we learn a little bit about how Moses meets with God. So there's a tent of meeting that Moses sets up outside of the camp. And when Moses enters in, the pillar of smoke that signifies God's presence covers the entrance and it guards it. And halfway through, one thing to note, halfway through kind of our reading today, the meaning of that word, the tent of meaning, or sorry, the tent of meeting, meeting, meaning, changes meaning. True. So at first it means a tent, like a standalone tent where Moses meets with the Lord. A little bit later, it comes to mean the tent that's part of the tabernacle that has the outer and inner kind of sanctuary. True. The the, the better tent of meeting, I guess you could call yeah. it. It's, it's what the, this little tent of meeting is a, is a foreshadowing yes. of the greater tent of meeting, which is a foreshadowing of the temple, which is a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ. But you know, hey, we're, that's way ahead of the story which represents now. the entirety of the cosmos. It's a good time. Anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, so while Moses is in a meeting of this type, he prays for mercy on his people or he intercedes on behalf of his people. That's what that means. Uh, and so he asks that God not remove his presence from Israel at this time. God grants this request. And then Moses makes another interesting request. And this is kind of, it, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. So Moses is like, God, please don't remove your glory from your people. And God acquiesces to this. And then Moses said, this is Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Then Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass. Sorry, this is God speaking. Uh, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And will be, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. 
He further said, You cannot see my face, for mankind shall not see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, this, there is a place by me that you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about that, my glory, that while my glory is passing by, that I will put you on the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that, and maybe is Moses just overcome with thankfulness to the Lord that he that he agrees to not let his presence depart? But it is just kind of, it, 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 it seems like it comes out of nowhere that Moses is just like, show me your glory. But I also think there's a part of it where Moses is just earnestly desiring that relationship yeah. with the Lord. He, keep, he wants to know more. He wants to learn more. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, I don't have anything to say, I guess. I just, think, I just thought it was interesting that that happens. And then obviously we get the point that uh, God is not going to fully reveal himself in glory to humans because basically we, we couldn't take it if he did. Yeah. The, the one interesting thing, I have a question for you. Ooh. Um, so uh, Moses in the tent of meeting is meeting with the Lord and they even call him, I forget the exact wording, but they say he's meeting with God face to face. Right. But then later, all of a sudden, he can't look at God face to face. I was he would die. What? So, what is the distinction here? Something is different. Obviously, this is the same writer. We're like a few paragraphs apart, with an idea that seems contradictory. What's What's your explanation of that? This is a couple. So, this is I'm I have not thought about this really before. Okay. So, this is just off the cuff. But a couple things I think it could be. And if it's heretical, feel free to. Either Hunter, let me know, or if you're listening, and you're like that's heresy. We'll that's Just email, heresy. Email in, and I, I will repent. Um, but I, I think a couple options could be the word "face" means different things, and so when he's mm-hmm. saying "face to face," that's a it's a metaphor saying personally speaking with God, as opposed to um, through any sort of inter- inter- intermediary. But not that he's seeing the face of God. And then when God says, "I will not show you my face," I don't, I don't think it means like. I don't think it means that God has a physical form because that, well, that, that God, the father has a physical form. I think what it's saying is a full expression of his glory. Uh-huh. Um, and so that could, and the other thing could be if there is some sort of a face-to-face meeting as far as like some type of a tangible presence of God, similar to the way that the disciples know Jesus mm-hmm. and they walk with Jesus, but they do not see him in glory until the transfiguration That's and even true, it's only yeah. Peter, James, and John. So there's clearly a way there's a way that God the Son can meet face to face with people without, by necessity, showing the fullness of His glory. Uh-huh. Um, whereas the Transfiguration and then after Jesus rises again, they see Him. I don't know if the correct term is there's fullness of glory, but it might be. Um, but mm-hmm. I, they see Him in a more glorified state yeah. at the very least than He was when He was um, before all of that happened. So I don't know if that 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 might be I what I think a, about. That's it. a great answer to that question. So there you go. I think that's if it's heresy, plausible. I don't think that's heresy at all. I think know. that's perfectly plausible. My other question about this passage, sorry to derail you here. I like derailing. Um, <laughs> but uh, here, it, it, uh, let me see. You cannot see my face for my mankind shall not see me and live. Um, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you on the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Right. Is this a Christophany? It could be. I, I tend to think of this as being, sorry, uh, Christophany means a um, 
a sighting of God the Son before the incarnation of Jesus. Yeah. So there's a few spots in the Old Testament where it's pretty clear that's what's happening. Most famously in Daniel, when they're mm-hmm. like, that fourth one looks like the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other ones where it's not necessarily clear. The one, the one that I think is, I I don't want to say for sure because you know obviously like it's not explicitly stated. But the one I would I'm pretty confident would be in a Christophany is when Moses, Aaron. And everyone else on the mountain sees like they they literally describe seeing a God person. in the yeah, yeah a person um and then they see the I forget it's like the sky of sapphire behind him uh-huh. and stuff like that so I think that's a Christophany I think this could be um, I mean it's talking about like a back you you will not see my face my hand will cover you like right. it's it's describing a person I mean it would be pretty cool if like what if this was actually like the exact form of Jesus and Moses got a little sneak peek that's complete conjecture but I just yeah, thought that'd be kind that'd of be cool that'd be a cool idea so, um but yeah I, th- I, I think it's either a Christophany or it's just metaphorical language to describe the fullness of the glory of God that yeah that Moses won't get to see the fullness of that but when he says the back he means like a, a portion of it so but the, I mean the real answer is we don't know for sure but there's it's always fun to speculate a little bit. Uh, so this goes on. God tells Moses to cut two new stone tablets because remember when Moses came down from the mountain and saw everything, he threw them on the ground and shattered them. Uh, so he's going to make two new ones and return to the summit of Mount Sinai to receive. Basically, God's going to rewrite the laws. He's going to be like, hey, you know, I get it. You were angry. I'm not mad. Bring them back up here. I'll, 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 you know, I'll make a copy. I'll make a second copy of those. Uh, and so Moses does this on the next morning. Once again, on the way, he pleads with God not to let his presence depart from Israel. So this is a very important thing to Moses. And I get it. Like, obviously, like without God's presence, they're just in the middle of the wilderness and they have no protection. So it's a pretty important thing for Israel at that point. Uh, God then renews the covenant that he made on Sinai, showing that even in the middle, even in the midst of Israel's apostasy, Yahweh will show them mercy. And by apostasy, I mean just full rejection of the covenant of God, because that's what happened. And again, it's crazy that the Ten Commandments were not given to Moses to give to the people. The Ten Commandments were audibly spoken by God, and the whole of Israel hears them. The second one is don't make any idols or graven images. And like a month later, like, you know, we should, let's make an idol and a graven image. That sounds awesome. So I get, I get everyone being super mad at this point. Well, Moses comes down from Sinai, uh, and his face is glowing after being in the presence of God. And, uh, you know, I wonder if there's another example of someone ushering in a new covenant and having his face glow. But, you know, whatever. That's a... On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face glows, and it's kind of heralding in the start of the New Covenant. So, if you if you don't, this to your listeners, I'm kind of trying to, to point at all of the spots in the Old Testament that point to the New Testament. I think it's especially important in this part of the Bible where it can get real dry, real fast. Yeah, so, for sure, we're getting we're even getting into Leviticus this week. <laughs> so we are. It's one of those things where I want to find in the Old Testament where does this point to Christ? Because I think it, if nothing else, it makes reading the those parts of the Old Testament more fun because you get to kind of go on treasure hunts. So there you be. Uh, so because of this, Mo, because Moses' face is glowing from being in the presence of God. Uh, He puts a veil to cover his face when he's with the Israelites. Uh, The only time he takes it off is when he's in the tent of meeting or when he he takes it off to reveal the things that God has said. This is so here's a really interesting point. Sidetrack, and then we'll get moving. We need to stop sidetracking so much because we're trying to cut down the length of the episodes a little bit. Sorry about last time I was on. Oh, it's a two hour. We all, we all, we all, (laughs) we're, we're trying to make the podcast as good as we can. It never mentions that Moses stops doing this. Do you, do you have any thought about, is this the rest of his life that you think this happens, that he's veiled? Or do you mm. think it's kind of implied I that, doubt it. that at some point the glowing wears off and he just doesn't do the veil I anymore? I think of it like a, like a glory sunburn. A glory, I like <laughs> so it. Once the glory sunburn goes away. Once it goes, I like it. 
We yeah. Don't, there's no nothing explicit. You're right. It was one of those things where I, uh, I, 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 the thought occurred to me as I was reading, so I kind of looked it up, and there's basically no concrete. Like all the answers are just like, oh, I don't know, maybe, but no one's like super definite on one side or the other. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like, yeah, who knows? So you'd think it'd be mentioned again. Yeah, the, yeah, the veil's never mentioned again after this. Yeah. So that that is a point in favor of the. At some point, it stops. Uh-huh. So who who knows? It's a good time. So then we get to Exodus thirty-five. This chapter begins with Moses gathering the people of Israel and instituting the Sabbath, six days of work, and on the seventh, a day of rest. This is patterned after the way God has described ordering the cosmos in the first chapter of Genesis with six either literal, figurative, or literary days of work, and then one of rest. Uh, Moses then moves on to the creation of the tabernacle again, asking the people to bring contributions specifically metal, stones, yarn, etc. Moses calls for craftsmen to build the tabernacle. The people leave Moses and gather their things to contribute to the tabernacle. This is like the auditorium we're literally working on right now. That's what we're doing as a church. Yeah. If you don't yeah, if you don't come to the church right now we're in the middle of a building campaign to try and get an, a new auditorium built because we're just we're running out of space and yeah, we, similar we have thing. Four services on a Sunday morning and yeah. it's only we didn't ask for lumber and concrete. We just asked no. for money to buy those. No, things. we're like, well, I, I, I guess mean, in one way, of, yeah, that's yeah. True. there's there's a couple companies. Some companies have donated, church, yeah. yeah, from people who go to the church. Uh, but uh, the people leave Moses. They gather these things to contribute to the temple. Uh, the Lord then calls a man named Bezalel to service, giving him great artistic ability by the Spirit. I hope to be like Bezalel as a worship pastor. That's a good time. I, I gotta say, you know, I, I respect the Israelites. You know, like after all of this stuff with the golden calf has happened, it's it says that they they bring so much stuff that Moses has to cut it off. So they're very yeah. excited about getting to do this. So this isn't like a reluctant thing. So kudos, kudos to the Israelites for for really getting on board the whole tabernacle situation right now. Yeah. So they start building the tabernacle, um, starting with the curtains that separate the most holy place from the holy place. Uh, this is kind of the inner and outer tent in the middle of the tabernacle. Uh, these are the these curtains are adorned with cherubim. This is a, a picture of the garden. Uh, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, the eastern entrance to the garden is guarded by two cherubim. That's oh. what it says. And the two cherubim that that guard the most holy place are a symbol of this. And later, when we get to the temple, which is like the tabernacle, just much more permanent, uh, the the kind of outer sanctuary, what we call the holy place or the tent of meeting here, uh, is adorned with pictures of creation. There's there's pigs and horses and it names all of these things. Um, so you have all of creation and then within it you have Eden, which is this place that God, God dwells and it's guarded with the two cherubim. Uh, where was I? The people... Curtains are made for the rest of the tent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bezalel makes sure. Oh, you're good. Curtains are made then uh, for the rest of the tent. And then Bezalel uh, makes the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim and the mercy seat, which is where God like lands essentially when he comes down. Um, we, we have this image later of Jesus sitting in this seat. Uh, the one who's given the authority to judge the world, right? And you'll note that there's no image of God. There is no image spot. of God. The no. cherubim are guarding something an, invisible. An empty seat, right. essentially, yeah. Uh, then the table for the bread of the presence is made. 
I I think that the bread and unfortunately there's not a ton of Protestant um Protestant scholarly work on this specifically. It's it's almost all Catholic, mainly because of their view of communion. Um but I see the bread of the presence as a, a, a shadow of communion, which it represents Christ's body oh, yeah. and blood, right? Uh, so the bread of the presence. Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's an accident that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. Yeah. I think there's a there's a we'll get into this when we get into like the grain offerings and stuff like uh-huh. that too. But I think there's a ton of imagery with bread oh, yeah. and wheat specifically that points towards Christ. Yeah. And then as we continue that same uh uh representation in communion when we take that together. Uh, then the lamp stand is made. This symbolizes the tree of life in the garden. Almost the entirety of the tabernacle is, is um, modeled after the cosmos and we get images of the garden within that. Uh, we have the building of the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings. Those will become very important here later. Those are set up uh, just outside the tent of meeting, which is kind of the central part of the um, tabernacle. Then we have the build. Oh, sorry, I just said that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Then we have the building of the bronze basin. This basin is used for ceremonial washings that the Levitical priests do. We'll get to that here uh, in the next couple weeks. But this practice slowly over time actually morphs into baptism. Uh, a few decades before Jesus comes on the scene, this practice of baptism starts. It's it's mainly just a sign of repentance. It's it's a, a whole body ceremonial washing. And that turns into the baptism of John, which then Jesus takes and it becomes the ultimate baptism, the baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is what you and I receive. Uh, so this is the the beginning of that, that process. Uh, and then the outer court is built. This is like a big um, fence of curtains, essentially, that surrounds the whole of the tabernacle. Uh, and then we have a description of all the materials for the tabernacle in in great detail. It's a good, <laughs> there's a lot there. It's a good time for sure. Well, and with all those descriptions of the material use of the tabernacle, I did I did the math. I did it last year, full disclosure. I copy and pasted from my notes from last year, but I did get the uh, what the actual weight of it. So apparently to construct all the stuff with the tabernacle, it was a little over one ton of gold. So a little over 2,000 pounds of gold. Wow. Uh, over 750 pounds of silver and over 5,000 pounds of bronze, which as you're as you read, you see where all the bronze goes because literally, yeah. not literally everything, but almost everything is like, and it was made of wood and overlaid with bronze. And this was made out of bronze, yeah. one whole piece. And so I got to say like, one, one thing that stood out to me is, and maybe this, we were talking, I can't remember if it was you or if it was Nathan or someone else, but I was talking about how, like when I look at a painting, I can understand how an artist does that. I'm a ter- I would be a terrible painter. I can't draw. I can't do anything like that, but I at least can conceptualize how someone would um, when I look at a statue, I have no idea how someone is able to just look yeah. at a, br- a block of marble and be like, like, how did Michelangelo look at oh, that yeah. and be like, ah, oh, David, I, I can see him in there. Um, I kind of get that vibe with Bezalel when he's making these things. Cause he'll talk uh-huh. about how, when he's making the, the, the lampstand, um, by the way, to the lampstand, just think menorah. That's, that's yeah, what yeah. it looks like. That's that. I mean, um, that's what that is. Yeah. So around Hanukkah, boom, there's the lampstand, but. It's it's all about, yeah, he just took one piece and he made the whole thing out of that. It's like, how do you even take just like a 
a large piece of bronze and hammer out a lampstand. Uh, the cherubim are both because the ark is made out of acacia wood and then it's overlaid in gold. But the cherubim are all solid sculptures out of gold. Like it, 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 I don't know. I, I think, uh, admittedly, like this, and I've said this a few times, but you know, these parts of the Old Testament can be a little bit dry to read. It can be a little bit hard. But but just think for like pause. Think for a moment about what's actually happening. This is incredible craftsmanship, and and maybe like some people are sculptors. They're like, yeah, Evan, it's not that hard. I can do this. But like, like for me at least, like for the average person, I don't know, man. I watched some videos of 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 people doing like the old uh, uh, what do you call it, marble sculpture stuff. Mm-hmm. It looks incredibly tedious and incredibly hard, even for someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how people do it. If you do it, I'm super impressed with you, but. There you go. Yeah, I just want to take a moment to say, let's make sure that we that we pause in the midst of reading these things and really think about what's going on. Um, the other thing I'll say is, be, it, it's such a gift that we have these exact specifications because that means we can get renderings and know pretty much exactly what all yeah. this looked like. And so, look up pictures. If you have a study Bible, you'll There's probably have a bunch pictures. there. Yeah, but just allow yourself to just close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to actually enter into the tabernacle because it's incredibly beautiful and you can have mental pictures that someone else has made and you can you can rely on you can trust those because again if if nothing else we're getting a very detailed description about what all these things look like and what they're made out of one other really interesting note um the the preciousness of the metal like the cost of the metal uh gets higher the further into the tabernacle you go oh yeah that's true yeah because it's Mm -hmm. gold in the in the the most holy holy place yeah the most holy place it gets called the holy of holies when we get to the temple yeah yeah well i'm looking ahead now it's the same same thing but um yeah it by the time you get to the inside it's all gold and and it looks great at least i imagine I, i would also imagine it looks great uh so now we get to exodus 39 uh this is this describes the making of the priestly garments, which again Always is exciting. In, yeah, it's in great detail, but some of these things are are significant and symbolic. Uh, note that many of the stones mentioned in the making of the garments appear in the description of the land where Eden was in Genesis. So if you go to Genesis, it talks about onyx and gold and a couple other very specific metals and stones. And we have those same things listed when the land where Eden was located is described. And then again, in the description of the new Jerusalem in uh, Revelation 21, at the very end of the scriptures, we have again, a list of some of these same stones and the streets are made of gold and it's tying all of these ideas together is the- That's really cool. The priest, yeah. So uh, the people bring the tabernacle in pieces to Moses now, They've assembled everything. And then we get to Exodus 40. God then commands that the tabernacle uh, be erected and anointed with oil in various places. The priests are anointed with oil for their duties. The tabernacle is built and the presence of the Lord fills the tent. Uh, But this time Moses can't enter. Yeah. Which we'll see this as a running theme because the next time this happens is when the temple is dedicated Uh and the presence of the Lord fills the temple. And the priests can't go in and do their job because the it's the prince of the Lord takes mm-hmm. the form of a cloud. Um, and then Ezekiel will see a vision of this happening. But then notably, when the second temple is built, it doesn't happen. So, mm-hmm. But now we're just getting way far. Yeah, yeah. Way far Jumping ahead. way, way ahead. You don't need to know all that. Um, 
whenever the cloud leaves the tabernacle, uh, the people were to move onward in their journey. And that concludes the book of Exodus. Boom. There you go. Well, now we're getting into, I, I, I talked about last week how the stereotype of doing the Bible reading plan is you start off really strong and then you get to the really hard parts to read. Um, the joke is always Leviticus. Everyone talks mm-hmm. about because Leviticus is- Well, in Numbers, all yeah. of the genealogy. Numbers at least has some like n- narrative that has a significant portion of narrative and, yes. the, and the earth opens up and swallows people, which is pretty cool. Like, let's not forget that story. Leviticus has a couple narrative moments, but the vast majority of it is going to be laws and statutes and things like that. So, but don't worry, listeners, because we're here and we're going to help you we are. Uh, as we go through this. And remember, I, I, I sent a post about this. If you follow the Grove Church on the Version Bible app, I try to post weekly just some kind of like helpful reminders and stuff. So this last week I posted like, hey, go on treasure hunts, find where Jesus is and all these things. It's going to help out a ton. Uh, so a couple things about Leviticus before we get started. It's the first book that we've run into where it's not really clear um, upon re- upon looking at it why it's named that. Because obviously, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, those are pretty clear. Genesis, Self-explanatory yep, name. Genesis is named that because it's the beginning. Exodus is named that because it literally describes an exodus, like what the, the great exodus of the people of Israel. Leviticus, you look at that and you're just like, what, what is this even about? So uh, it comes from, it's, it's, it's because it's God's instructions to the Levites. And so I believe this is from the Septuagint name, which the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around when Jesus was around. Uh, and when Jesus was here on earth, Jesus is still around but still around. yeah oh, the almost heresy there that's a, well that is a big one that was a close one okay <laughs> but luckily we dodged, we dodged that bullet uh so it's called leviticus because it's god's instruction to the levites remember all of the priests are from the tribe of levi which means not every levite is a priest but every priest is a levite uh the hebrew name is weikra which means and god and, and specifically and yahweh called or the mm. the name of god called and so I think that's way cooler. I think the name should be something along the lines of, and God called. Cause you know what? Like instructions to the Levites does not nearly inspire as much as, and then God called, but there you go. That would be cool. What are you going to do? So in my, in my heart, the name of this book is Weikra, but in our, in our Bibles, it's Leviticus. Okay. Uh, so we begin with some laws of offerings. So first off, we have the burnt offering. And when you think of offering, this is kind of the one that you probably think of. It's the one where the whole animal is sacrificed, the blood is drained, and it's burnt on the altar. Uh, the Israelites are expected to bring a male animal without defect from their flocks. Um, the idea is it should be something that God is holy. So you should be offering something that costs you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not gonna you're not gonna go into your flocks and just pick a sickly animal and be like, oh, this one's not gonna make it. Let's give it to the Lord. Like, no, you're supposed to give him the best. Um, and the reason it's male is because males are more expensive because you need. Um, I I guess I don't know a ton about husbandry, so I'm just, I was about to launch into a whole thing that I don't know if it's true. But basically, <laughs> uh, you're gonna have less males than you're gonna have females in your flocks, and obviously, you if you have one male, you can breed a ton. You don't you that need significantly more females in order to make that happen. So it's just one of those things. But uh, again, the idea is that Yahweh is holy, and when He's worshipped through sacrifice, it should be with the best. Um, I will say, I wonder if one day there will be a a perfect sacrifice. Maybe someone who's spotless and without defect, who's offered up for the sins of the world. Anyway, that'd be great. That'd be cool. (laughs) Uh, So the animals uh, listed as acceptable are first a bull, 
And then the next rung down is a sheep or a goat. Uh, and then finally, a pair of turtle doves or doves. Uh, I looked up turtle doves because I was like, I realized we talk about those all the time. And I have no idea what they look like. They're beautiful. They're really pretty. They're not white, but they're, you know, they're like, they got kind of shiny and stuff. They're yeah. fun. Yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, the idea was that you would do the most expensive one that you could afford. So mm-hmm. there's the, the bull is kind of the most expensive animal. If you have wealth, you're expected to sacrifice an animal of great wealth. Uh, the doves and the turtle doves are, they're literally made for the poor that they can go and they can they can purchase these things for a very small amount of money and they can sacrifice them. So even if you don't have money or or you have very little money, you can still offer an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, which I love that. God is making a way for everyone, not just the wealthy, to be able to worship him in mm-hmm. this way. Uh, the next set of rules is for the grain offerings. Uh, these are offerings of crops instead of animals. These were also acceptable. Uh, the way that you would do it is a portion of it would be burnt as incense along with oil and frankincense. So you take, you were supposed to take whatever your crop was and you're going to ground it into flour. So I guess it's, it's a grain crop specifically. Uh, and then after you do that, you would put some oil in there, you would mix it with frankincense and then the priest would burn it. And it, it talks about how uh, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the you're rest- making bread. You're making, yeah, pretty much, I guess. That's, I guess that's true. Uh, the rest of it would be given to the priest specifically, and it, it's for them to eat. So remember, the the uh, the tribe of Levi does not have any, I guess no one has land at this point, but when mm-hmm. they get into the promised land, the Levites won't have any land. They have cities inside of the different tribes. And the way that they make their living is because they're all dedicated to the priesthood. That is what they do. So the way that they're able to eat is the other the other tribes provide for them. So I guess in a similar way that like when we pay tithes today, a portion of that goes towards paying like the salaries of the pastors so they can yeah. eat and have- That is and quite literally, a house. Yeah. You're, you're my salary. That's true. Thanks, Grove Church. Yeah, thank you. You guys are Grove awesome. Uh, but that's it's a similar idea here where the the needs of the priests are being met by the people in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they're they're busy with tabernacle stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, I wonder if one day there will be a, a bread of life that is offered in sacrifice and <laughs> does not only feed the priests, but feeds the whole world. Man, that yeah. would be, wouldn't, wouldn't that just be super rad? Yeah, I noticed the, the, the two types of sacrifices are what? It's an animal, right? So blood specifically is sprinkled on the altar and it's grain, it's bread. Blood and bread. It's almost like those two things are uh, Man, what, might come up again. Is there some sort of is there some sort of ritual that we do as the church <laughs> to remember the sacrifice of Christ that includes those two things? Yes, not literal blood or literal. Well, actually, literal bread, but not literal blood. Yes. Um. Honestly, Leviticus. My first thought here is is really hard for me to read. Mm-hmm. I don't know why sacrificing animals in this context is is so difficult for me and i know a lot of other people it's just hard to read and then i think about it and i'm like but but i made a steak for lunch i like the smell of barbecue but for some reason the the idea of the lord liking the smell of a sacrificed animal is like is like hard for my brain to to cope with for some reason interesting i've never thought this before yeah (laughs) i don't know when i read it i think part of it is just um kind of the modern our modern relationship with animals is a little different sure we're very separated from the killing of animals for our food even though we consume it all the time mm-hmm. and tons of us have pets and just this idea of of dogs having you know like i have a dog and he's he's practically like my child you know i treat him that way and i assign him a a um a personality that maybe he doesn't have <laughs> um yeah but the idea of animals i don't know it's just really hard 
to read for me. Well, it reminds me of, I, I saw this, a dad posted the other day. He's like, I don't know what to do because my daughter just asked me, uh, why do chicken nuggets and chickens have the same name? Because she didn't realize <laughs> that it's the same thing. He's like, I don't, I don't have the heart to tell Aww. her. But what, yeah, you're right. We, we do live. In the in the ancient world, this would have not have been a weird thing because it's yeah. like you you're, you're slaughtering your own animals, or at the very least, you're around when it's happening. Whereas mm-hmm. today, like most of us, will go our whole lives without ever seeing a thing that we eat like mm-hmm. alive. Like it's it's kind of a it is kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, but we we jump into Leviticus three here, and this is um, the last of kind of the offerings of thanksgiving to the Lord. Uh, we can notice that these offerings are all described as having a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that kind of explains their function, uh, not necessarily uh, as offerings of atonement for sin. That's what we're going to get to in Leviticus 4, um, but at, at mainly as worship, kind of the way you described it earlier. That's the the function of the first few offerings. Um, then the next offering that we get to doesn't use the language of it has a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's kind of the, the distinction that's made here. Right. Uh, we jump into Leviticus 4. This outlines a few different kinds of sin offerings. It's mainly, uh, in fact, all of them are offerings for someone or a congregation or a leader, or it, it kind of repeats the same thing just with different types of offerings, but it's all for someone who sins unintentionally whether that's, again, the priest or the congregation or an individual, all of Leviticus 4 is for someone who sins unintentionally. It outlines the offerings that are to be made for those sins. Yeah. Oh, and we'll wrap up this week with our last two chapters of Leviticus. It's some more rules regarding these types of offerings. Uh, We're introduced to something called a guilt offering. Uh, And like Hunter said, this isn't a generic offering. So like, well, well, you'll have the... um, the offering of like Yom Kippur or the, the Day of mm-hmm. Atonement, which is kind of a, a generic offering over the entire nation. These are specifically for uh, you sinned. Yes. <laughs> so or, you... or all of Israel sinned or... True. Yeah. There's there's a few different... Yeah. Yeah. I guess, well, the ones I'm reading here is like oh, yeah, the, sorry. The, the person in, itself. In five. Yeah. So it talks about how if you yourself sin, uh, it, it, or if you're made aware of the fact that you sinned, then you mm-hmm. need to confess this to the priest and then you will offer uh, the sacrifice of a guilt offering. Uh, you're allowed to offer a female lamb or goat as an offering on this one. So true. there you go. That's a nice little, it's a little bit cheaper, I suppose. Uh, however, if the person cannot afford a lamb or a goat, they're also allowed to offer up turtle doves or doves. So, th- and this is pretty, I think in pretty much every sort of sacrifice, a dove or turtle dove is acceptable for the poor. I, I That's, I think you're right. I could be wrong, but you know, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess, next week if, yeah. if, if, I, if I forgot about one of those things. Uh, and in this one, there's even, if you can't afford the birds, you're allowed to make an offering of flour instead. So you can actually offer pretty much the cheapest thing that you could you could offer to grain offering as a, as a guilt mm-hmm. offering. So really cool. Again, that, that God is making a way for all of his people, regardless of their amount of wealth, to be able to worship him in this mm-hmm. way, or to be able to actually, this one is to be able to ask for forgiveness, which yeah. is a form of worship, but still incredibly important. Uh, so after this happens, the priest is to make atonement on behalf of the sinner. So yeah, it'd be cool if one day there was a even greater high priest who would stand between God and man and make atonement on our behalf. But anyway, uh, and if, if someone sins by disrespecting the holy objects of the tabernacle or the priests, the offering is upgraded to a ram. So now, hey, mm. no female goats or sheep. This has to be a male goat or sheep. Uh, and then there's also an amount of money that you have to pay that is at the discretion of the priest. So essentially, it, it seems like this would be to make up damages or anything like that, that you have to 
be able to pay yeah. and make good on that. Uh, if someone intentionally sins and damages a person, uh, they are expected to, you offer a ram again, so you're offering a more expensive offering and you're expected to make full repayment of whatever you did to wrong someone and the priest to the one who decided what that amount is. So if you if you defraud someone, it's not just enough to be like, oh man, I'm sorry, I took all your money. I'm going to go offer a ram now. Like, no, you got to go, you got to make that right <laughs> fully. And then you can offer a, a sacrifice of forgiveness. Uh, and then some more instructions that are given to priests. This is kind of, for me, this is just kind of fun because you can imagine what it would have been like to be around the tabernacle. And then later on is the Old Testament when they talk about the temple, you can imagine what that was like. Uh, so these instructions are including, but not limited to, uh, the fire of the altar is to be kept going continuously. So it, it's never, it never burns out. So you can kind of imagine what that's like. There's never a point where you're walking by uh, the the altar of sacrifice. Even if there's not a sacrifice happening, there's a flame going underneath it. So the priests are supposed to put wood uh, and keep it going continuously. Uh, grain offerings must have a portion that is burned first, but then be eaten without leaven. So when the priests are eating the grain offerings, the, because when the Israelites, you know, we just read this last week or the week before, uh, when the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't have time to put leaven into their bread. They ate unleavened bread. And therefore that is what the priests are going to do as a, a symbol of God, um, God's faithfulness during the Passover. Just had a brain fart. I couldn't think of what I was trying to say there. Uh, And then finally, sin offerings are to be eaten in the courtyard of the tent of meeting only. Uh, That's going to come up next week. So next week, spoiler alert, some people are going to get really- do that. Some people are going to get really punished for not following the rules and some other people are going to be- let off the hook a little bit. All of them sons of Aaron. So tune in, yep. tune in next week to find out what I'm talking about there. Uh, but for this week, that does wrap it up for the Old Testament portions of our readings. Before we jump into the New Testament, I do want to take a moment to say, hey, if you haven't left, left us a five-star review yet, please go ahead and do so particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two apps that really help us get the message out there to as many people as possible and to continue to grow this uh, community of people reading the Bible together. On Spotify, you can't leave a written review yet. I don't know if they're ever going to change that. But on Apple Podcasts, you can. So if you leave a written review, we will read it out loud on the... Obviously, we'll read it out loud. We'll read it on the podcast and we'll give you a shout out. So uh, we'd love for you to do that. And with that being said, let's jump into the New Testament. All right. Well, we left off last week with Paul's iconic sermon at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, depending on your translation. Uh, So after all of that, Paul and his posse leave for Corinth. Uh, and there he meets two impel- impelent, important fellow workers. Uh, these are Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, both of them are Jew. Well, it's a husband and wife combo. I don't know why. I feel like you always say Priscilla and Aquila instead of the other way around. But it's a. It's yeah. A, I feel like normally you say the husband first. So I don't know. Maybe Priscilla was just awesome. She, she you know, she does a cool bunch of cool stuff. It just feels more natural. Hey, I guess so. The way the names are structured. But anyway, so they're a husband and wife combo. They lived in Rome, and apparently there was an order that was expelling some Jews, and so they made their way to Corinth. They meet Paul, and you know, they they're like, hey, this Jesus guy is awesome. That's maybe a little bit of a too flippant of a way of saying it. But they hear the gospel, they believe, uh, and they also they they share a trade with Paul. And so I, I believe this is the first time that we hear that Paul's a tent maker. I don't know if it came up before this, but as, I think in this account, yeah, yeah. It, as as Paul's moving forward, as he's doing his missionary journeys, he's making sure that he's making money basically to be able to fund some of this. Some of this is given by the congregations, but some of it is also just Paul being able to pay his way from place to place. So he's making tents. So him, Priscilla, and Aquila. There's, you know, they're hanging out, they're making tents. If, if this was a movie, this would be a montage of, you know, they're making tents, Paul's preaching in the synagogues, people are coming to believe, you know, it's, it's a good time. Uh, well, not a great time because once again, Paul, it, you kind of, 
I shouldn't say, the way that Paul strategically ministers in these cities is he always goes to the synagogue first. And so mm-hmm. he's going to talk to the Jews and he's going to say, hey, we've all been talking about the Messiah. Guess what? I met him. <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. Knocked uh, me off my donkey. Exactly. And so I was, yeah, well, sorry. That was a whole, I just had it. Does it specify donkey? No, I was trying I to find I don't where. Think so. Cause I, I don't ho- think so. One of the connection points I was thinking of like between the old new Testament had like Balaam and then Paul both getting knocked off their donkeys. Uh-huh. But then I was like, I went through and I read the account and I was like, it doesn't say Paul is on a donkey. It's maybe it's just taught that way all the time. So I probably I got to pick an animal and I feel like, Usually when people are traveling, they're traveling on donkeys. That's what you hear about. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was just a random aside of a thing I was thinking about. So there you go. Uh, So Paul Paul is preaching in the synagogues in Corinth. The Jews, here they kind of just straight up reject it right away. So it it doesn't go super well. Uh, Paul shakes out his robe, which is just kind of a way of saying like, all right, you know, I'm done with all of you. And then he declares Davy Crockett style that they can all shove it. And he's going to the Gentiles. Uh, If you don't know the history of that, Davy Crockett said, you all can shove it. I'm going to Texas. Uh, He didn't say shove it though. He said more forceful words than that, but I can't (laughs) say them on the podcast, but all that to say Davy Crockett's awesome. Anyway, so about six <laughs> months later, uh, the Jews of Corinth try to drive Paul away. And so by appealing to, uh, I almost said Galileo, but that's just the way the name looks. It's Galileo, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, he's the proconsul. So like they go to him like, hey, this Paul guy is preaching heresy and all this different stuff. And Galileo responds with basically, I, I couldn't care less, guys. Why are you bringing this to me? Which is kind of the response of every Roman leader at the start is they'll be like, except for, yeah, I mean. Even like when Jesus is on trial, they bring into Pilate and Pilate is basically like, I don't really care that he's, yeah, why am I, why are you, why am I involved in this? He tries to put, push it off on Herod and Herod just kicks it right back to Pilate. Um, And we'll see, you know, spoiler alert, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem and he's standing trial before a bunch of people, that's what happens again is everyone's just like, I don't, I don't care about this. Specifically the Roman leadership. Right. Romans. Yeah. yeah. The, the Jews care very much that Paul is a little too much. Yeah. Come on guys. Just accept that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, why are you, why are you fighting it? Uh, So anyway, after that, uh, Paul eventually does leave and he makes his way back to Antioch, but he makes a few pit stops along the way. And so I don't know. I guess Aaron or not Aaron Hunter. I miss Aaron Hunter. Talk about some of the, some of the pit stops that Paul was making. Uh, so Paul on his, his journey back to Jerusalem, first he goes to Ephesus there. He finds some disciples, some followers of the way, some Christians, whatever you want to call them. Uh, he asked them if they have received the Holy spirit when they believed, they say they haven't. And have only received John's baptism of repentance. They receive a baptism from from Paul and his posse uh, in the name of Jesus, and then Paul lays his hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Great work, yeah. Uh, the, Paul then teaches in the synagogue there in Ephesus for three months, but leaves after facing some resistance, <laughs> uh, which seems to be a common theme. Kind of every city he goes to, unfortunately, that's <laughs> just the way it is. He moves his teaching uh, to a guy named Tyrannus's lecture hall. Tyrannus, sweet name, sweet All about name, it. Darth Tyrannus. Ooh, a little, a little Star, Star Wars, Wars reference. reference, a little Count Dooku. Ooh, yeah, Count Dooku. That if you don't know, that's Count Dooku's 
that's like his actual Sith name. If you're uh, our age, though, these are the Star Wars movies that you grew up on, so you know every little detail yeah. about them. Sorry. Um, <laughs> he stays there for two years until all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia hear the gospel. I think the first time I read this, I was like, wow, Paul preached to the entirety of Asia? For clarity, the Roman province of Asia is not the equivalent of what we today call the continent of Asia. Significantly larger. Sign <laughs> significantly larger. The Roman province of Asia is the western quarter of modern day Turkey, like a fourth of Turkey, the side that's closest to Greece um, and doesn't include the Bosphorus Strait, which is like that little land bridge that, that Istanbul is on. Um, Used to be Constantinople. Yeah. Shout out to the Byzantines. <laughs> Shout out to the Byzantines. Not really though. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Uh, even things that he had touched were taken to the sick and demon possessed so that they would be healed, which is kind of a wild story. Um, I, th I think this is the only place except the, the touching of Jesus's garment where we get like objects doing seemingly magical things in a new Testament context. New Testament. Yeah. Cause there's yeah, a yeah, Elisha, yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. There's a few in the old Testament, but in a new Testament context, and it's not through Jesus, it's through Paul. Um, so it kind of feels like Paul is magic. And this is how people who were hearing about Paul kind of took it. Uh, we get this passage here that sort of explains what's, what's going on. Uh, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. These people are they're, they're trying to use these things as magic words. Uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowering them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> Nerds. Nerds. <laughs> And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How, how viable is that? I don't know. But that is, probably probably a, a lot. lot. <laughs> so, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Kind of the point here is Paul isn't magic. Like his words and the objects he's touching aren't in and of themselves the things that are casting out demons. Because these these guys, who are the sons of Sceva, are, are trying to invoke the name of Christ, but they don't believe. They don't have faith. Right. I, I, yeah, I do. I do love the picture of just the whole idea of, uh, yeah, like I, we proclaim in you know Jesus. That guy Paul knows Jesus. We <laughs> proclaim in that name, and uh, the 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 answer back. Not to give credit to a demon, but I love the answer back of just Where like, is, who yeah, are you? I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> who, who do you think you are? Yeah. Oh man, it's just crazy. But yeah, the the point is is they're not magic. It's the spirit of God in Paul that is doing extraordinary miracles. And it uses that term extraordinary because this is clearly like an unprecedented thing that's happening. These yep. objects and these words are healing the sick and casting out demons, which is is wild even for us as as believers to kind of conceptualize. Yeah, well, and I appreciate, and I, this could be, this is a little bit of a theologically um, 
controversial statement, I suppose. So I'm not a I am not a cessationist. Me and Hunter are both proud Pentecostals who believe are that the the Holy Spirit a continuationist. Yeah, continuation. We believe the the all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active today uh, for, for the church. Um, but there is something to be said about the fact that when God introduces a new covenant, He does so with just an abundance of miracles yes. that we we have never seen before, and I, I don't think miracles of this frequency and intensity will ever see again as well. Um, I guess I shouldn't say ever ever, but at least in before the return of Christ, I yeah. think. Uh, and and, and the, I think the reason for this is because it's such a break from what the old covenant was. God is wanting to make sure that people know by the by the nature of miracles, like, no, I'm, I'm showing you, I'm blessing this. The gospel is going out in power. Exactly. Like a, yeah. yeah. Um, the next thing that happens is there are some silversmiths in Ephesus and their job is they made idols as a means of employment. And they get very mad that Paul is saying idols are not actually gods. What? What? Um, and they their whole way of life is threatened. So they they incite a mob in Ephesus who sees a, a couple of Paul's friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, which are wonderful names. Gaius uh, at least kind of makes it. I guess not. You don't know very many Gaiuses, but at least there you are can people named Gaius. It's yeah, true. At least you can pronounce it. Yeah, <laughs> and they bring them to the theater. Chaos ensues there for a couple hours before the city clerk breaks up the mob and basically tells them go go settle it in court. Like, get out of here. Yeah, pretty much. That's kind of the, again like we talked about. It's kind of the answer for a lot. That's of kind of the Romans. They're care. like, what? What? Hunter, we I gotta say, care. I gotta say in the notes you spelt theater the. The British way, not the American way. So I have no idea you. why that would have happened. Look at you, look at you being all sophisticated with your English. So who who knew? Uh, well, after after that whole hullabaloo, uh, Paul decides to make his way to Macedonia, which is modern day northern Greece, uh, due to a plot to take his life. So he's kind of going the long way around, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, he ministers to all of those regions and then starts to make his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, and I got it's funny I. I feel like I was, maybe I was just so enthralled with Acts that I was I was shocked that this was happening this early. Like it felt like there was a lot more that was going to happen before. Spoiler alert: the last thing is Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem and then eventually makes his way to Rome, mm -hmm. and so that's what the whole rest of the book of Acts is is concerned with. And so as I was reading this, like, whoa, this early? Holy cow! But you know, maybe that's just that's just this year of the Bible reading plan, apparently. Uh, and so we also get a mention of the crew that Paul is rolling with, which includes Timothy and Luke. Uh, Luke doesn't mention his name, but he says we. So, and that's that's one feature I love in Acts is Luke switches between the first and third person when he's when he's there. So there's some things where he's hearing the stories or the accounts of people, and it just says, "Oh yeah," and then they went and did this, and then it, randomly it'll be, and then we went and we did. So you can see, yeah, the oh, pronoun changes, right? That's where, that happens the first time uh, in chapter 16, which was probably last week. Yes. Yeah. And Reading? I forgot to mention it. I put it yeah. in my notes and everything. And yeah. Just... And the, the, the second time it happens is here. There in you this go. Chapter. Uh, and then they all meet up in Troas, which is in modern day Northwest Turkey, or as we just found out in the ancient province of Asia, not to be confused with the continent of Asia. Uh, when this happens, this is Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> it says, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He, and he prolonged his message until midnight. 
There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named... Uh, I should have thought about this. Eutychus? Eutychus? Let's do it. Uh, there's Eutychus? A young, Eutychus? Oh, I've heard Eutychus before. Okay. We're going Eutychus. Uh, and there's a young man named Eutychus sitting in the window seal, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, Eutychus was overcome by sleep and fell down on the third from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. After embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for he is still alive. When Paul had gone back up and broken bread and eaten, he talked with them long until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and they were greatly comforted. So there you go. Uh, I think Paul raises someone from the dead there. Or he literally didn't die and Paul was just like, hey guys, don't worry. He's uh-huh. good. But yeah. But I think I think that's a, a raise from the dead moment that just happened. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It's a lot less clear than the ones where it's like, and Dorcas was for sure dead and Peter came <laughs> yeah. over. So maybe th- because it's not clear, maybe that it really is just like everyone thought he died, but then he was he turned out to be okay. But I feel like because it's included, it's probably- a, Probably a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. So anyway. Otherwise, it's just like a random thing that happened. <laughs> That's that's a fair point. Otherwise, it's just some kid fell out of a window. Yeah, it's fine. Paul checked on him and he was fine. You know what? Miracle. You heard it here yeah, first. Yeah, not first. I think it's fair to say probably miracle. All right. So after Chiroas, they sail down to uh, Miletus, which is in modern day Western Turkey. So they're going south uh, and they catch a ship bound for Judea. Paul decides that he's not going to stay and visit in Ephesus because I, I would have not stayed because everyone was such a big jerk there. But he decides Honestly. not to stay because he wants to uh, he wants to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which remember, when we hear Pentecost, we think Holy Spirit descending, which is very true, happened on that day. It was also a Jewish festival. Yeah. And so this is a big deal for pe- people who travel to go to Jerusalem. Uh, he sends word to the church of Ephesus of his plans, basically saying like, hey, I'm going to be for a little bit, but not super long. Uh, and so the elders of the church decide to meet him there instead. So kind of it, it's in. I feel like from the text, it's implied it's like on the docks or something like that. Uh, during this meeting, Paul reveals that he is going to Jerusalem. Uh, the Holy Spirit has revealed that chains await him there. Uh, he defends his ministry and he encourages the Ephesians to stand strong in the faith, uh, which you'll see this. It, it's really interesting because you see this tone happen with Paul in his later letters as well, where once he's moving towards prison and especially mm-hmm. once he's in prison and especially, especially once he realizes he's going to die soon, he's very concerned with encouraging the church to stand firm in the faith and to not, to not, um, to not be swayed by either persecution or heresies, both of which are happening. Right. And it, 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 and it makes sense because early on in the gospel, you probably don't have a ton of time for heresies to develop yet. The big one would be, Hey, Jesus isn't the Messiah, but the rest of them would kind of take mm-hmm. a little bit. But by the time Paul's an old man, um, and then especially like once you get to like John and Jude, who are kind of like the last letters, you see the the beginnings of the Gnostics, which are people who believe that Jesus was uh, fully spirit, but not not physical, not physical. Yeah. And then you also begin to see a little bit of like maybe Arianism, where and those that's the opposite, where people believe that Jesus is fully physical but not divine. So anyway, that's His created being, yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, sorry, that's just, I keep going off on tangents today. That's not really what this is about. But Paul wants to encourage the Ephesians to stand strong in the faith. Uh, and then I, I love this scene at the end because this just show it's just a human scene. It shows Paul and the emotion that he feels and also all of the people there. It says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all began to weep aloud and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, regrieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to a ship. So yeah, it's just this really heartfelt, I, I love that Paul just takes the moment and they all, I, I get the idea that they all kneel together, they all pray, and then they're kind of just, they're they're walking him back to the ship and they're saying goodbye. Incredibly emotional, mm-hmm. um, but also just a really beautiful testament to 
the ministry that God did and, and how he's leaving the, the church in Ephesus in their hands. We get a couple uh, moments like that right. in these chapters uh, where very heartfelt goodbyes. Uh, Acts 21 starts, Paul, Luke, and their other companions sail to Tyre. Here they encounter some disciples who urge them not to go on to Jerusalem. The spirit is beginning to reveal, obviously earlier directly to Paul, but right. now through others, what's going to happen. I, I love like, obviously this is paraphrasing, but they're mm-hmm. just like, Paul, don't go. You're going to go to prison. Like, yeah, the Holy Spirit told me that too. Crazy. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Basically he's like, they, they're, they're adding interpretation to the prophecy that they're receiving in a sense. That's a good way to put um, it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is wrong interpretation. He's supposed to go. It's just, they're what's going to happen is being revealed. So they're like, right. don't go. Like Jesus knows about the cross, yeah, but he also knows he needs to go. Not that but, this but is the cross, Peter but tries to, to stop him essentially and right. keep others from taking him. Same sort of deal. Uh, they then go to Ptolemaeus. Uh, that's probably how you say that. Yeah, the peace silent. Totally. Yeah. Uh, for a day, then to Caesarea. After some time, a prophet named Agabus, one of my favorite names. Great name. In uh, the gospel, or, um, in the scriptures give gives Paul a prophecy about being bound in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles, which comes true by the way. Um, others, including Luke join Agabus in trying to convince Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Paul responds by saying he's ready to go. Even if it means dying for the Lord, which is a thing Paul says a lot. And it's a thing that spoiler alert happens. Well, not really spoilers, because if you're just reading the Bible, you have no idea what happens to the Paul. <laughs> but, but it's pretty heavily, you read Second Timothy, it's pretty hard to come away with that from that book, but not realizing that Paul's about to be executed. But, yeah. Yes. But we don't, we don't actually get the scene. I get, yeah, you're, that is true. Uh, Luke and Paul then make it to Jerusalem. Paul reports to James, the brother of Jesus and the elders what he has done in his journeys, all, all of his, his preaching and his teaching and his forming of churches and all that stuff. James is worried that Paul is teaching Jewish believers to completely forsake the Jewish law and customs and asks Paul, just knowing that all of the Jews in Jerusalem are going to be really angry with Paul, to uh, take a Nazarite vow, shave his head, uh, which comes from number six, which we'll get to at some point. Um, in the Old Testament. How, yeah, we're at least we're weeks away for sure. I'm not sure yeah, how a few, long exactly. Yeah, a few weeks from from that. A Nazarite vow, um, uh, this is slightly speculative that this is the kind of vow that he's taking. In context, it, it seems that this is what's happening because of the details. A Nazarite vow is a voluntary vow someone can take as a time dedicated to the Lord. It's not required under the law, uh, but it's voluntary. It's kind of an, we can think of it as an act of worship. It's kind of like fasting, the way fasting functions today. Um, At the conclusion of the time period of the vow, the person will take an offering before the Lord and shave their head. Like Paul actually did earlier in chapter 19. We get just this one little line. He'd shaved his head because he'd taken a vow. Right. Um, James asks Paul to pay the expenses of the other men taking the bow, the bow, taking the vow, which would be a lot. Um, those that would include a male lamb, an ewe lamb, a ram, a basket of unle- unleavened bread, loaves of flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers with oil, and a grain and drink offering for each of those men he was asked to take a vow with. Um, so he's he would basically be paying 
the expenses they're expected to pay at the end of the vow, they come and bring those things to the temple as an offering to kind of as a conclusion to that vow period. Uh, Paul goes ahead with James's plan, but is apprehended by some angry Jewish believers when he enters the temple with all of these things to to end the vow period. Uh, the Jews try to kill Paul. <laughs> But he's eventually, classic. yeah, classic, but he's eventually taken by Roman soldiers to the Roman barracks. Uh, the Roman commander thinks Paul is some Egyptian terrorist. <laughs> They've been hearing all kinds of weird stuff about Paul. <laughs> Everyone's I, slandering Paul at this point. It reminds me a little bit of like in the Old Testament where you get just like a quick aside where it's like, uh, oh yeah. And then there was this guy who killed like nine giants. And then let's move on. It's like, wait, wh- tell me more about this Egyptian terrorist. What's been going on here? But we don't get anything more. What are yep. you going to do? Uh, But Paul sets them straight and is allowed to speak to the people of Jerusalem. And and when he speaks, he very intelligently, Mm -hmm. he begins speaking to them in Hebrew because the whole controversy with Paul is like- Or Aramaic. I think it's- No, it's Hebrew dialect. Yeah. Is that what he says? It says Hebrew dialect. I guess that could- could. Well, they would speak Aramaic at that point. Right. I mean, well, but he's best- I mean, I guess is the Hebrew dialect- Referring to Aramaic or the word Hebrew. Were you reading there. NASB? I was. I'm a NASB. I was an ESV. I'm going NASB this year. It said Ar- or, um, Aramaic. Aramaic. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, normally I'm an ESV boy, but this year I, I switched it up. Sorry, this is a complete aside. Because Hebrew was the language that the Torah was written in. Right. And as we're reading the Old Testament would have been the language they would have been speaking at that time. But in the intertestamental period... In a little before that, like at the very end of the scriptures, that language morphs into Aramaic. Right. So the common language of the people at the time we're reading this in Jerusalem would have been Aramaic. They probably also spoke a little Greek. Um, Some of them spoke a lot of Greek. And then those who are learned in the scriptures would have spoken Hebrew. Um, my, My ESV says he's speaking to them in Aramaic. It sounds like NASB says a dialect. It says Hebrew dialect specifically. Interesting. So, yeah. These are the things that the people care about for sure. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Oh no, you're good. I mean, it's a, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun little side. But yeah. suffice to say, he's not speaking Greek, and he's speaking the yes. dialect of the people of Israel yes. at this point. Uh, and so he, he begins to share his story. So he, and this is Paul, uh, the Pharisee, sharing with the Jewish crowd how he went from being the chief prosecutor of Christians to being one of the chief missionaries of Christ. So it's incredibly powerful. And again. Mm-hmm. Read that with that context in mind. This is this is if Paul if the accusation against Paul is that he's kind of some Gentile interloper or that he wants to kill Judaism, like he he just wants to to be completely done away with uh, to completely do away with it. Uh, Paul is fully defending his ministry with the context of who he is, who he sat under. Um, he he shares with them all of all of his basically his resume about how he is a great Pharisee. And yet this incredible miracle happened to him. And now he can't do anything but preach Christ. Um, And so he shares the miracle on the road to Damascus and how he was blind, but he was given his sight back and how Ananias, not the one who died, uh, had ministered to him and how he had been baptized. Uh, But things start to go south, however, when Paul shares what happens next. So he says, and this is in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 17, He says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. 
And when your blood and when the blood of your witness, Stephen was being shed, I was also standing nearby and approving and watching over the cloaks of those who were killing him. And he said, go for, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh, And so Paul's basically saying, as he's talking with the Lord, he doesn't think the Jewish Christians are going to accept them because in fairness, I would have a hard time accepting someone who had been trying to round me up and kill me. So I, <laughs> but it's a very, very reasonable fear that Paul has. And so Jesus declares that, okay, we're go- I'm going to send you to the Gentiles instead. Uh, and so at this point, they cut off Paul and it says they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered that he be brought into the barrel saying that he was to be interrogated by flogging so that he would find out the reason why they were shouting against him. And again, there's this idea that the Ro- the Roman guy does, guard does not understand. Like, he's like, why are people so mad about yeah. this? Uh, but when they snatched him out with straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? The commander came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Uh, and so this is kind of, the Roman citizens had a lot of rights yeah, in the Roman empire. Right. Uh, and so basically what this is, is it's an extra rung up of who you are. Um, obviously, if you are under the jurisdiction of Rome, that does not mean that you're a Roman citizen. Most of the um, the people living in Judea would not have been Roman citizens. It's this thing that Paul has though, and it's, it's the way that he gets to where he's going because Paul wants to go to Rome and he wants to talk to Caesar. He wants to share the gospel with Caesar. Um, unfortunately, Caesar is Nero of neckbeard and crazy fame, and so it's not going to go very well. But again, that's tradition, I guess. So we don't we don't even know if Paul actually ever got to go before Caesar. But mm-hmm. um, I like to think that he did. And obviously, it didn't go very well because Nero is just – he's not the worst. Surprisingly, <laughs> Nero's really bad, but there's worse Roman emperors out there. Um, and so when this happens – It says that therefore those who were about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him. And the commander was also afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So even the putting him in chains is a big deal. Uh, Now on the next day, wanting to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all of the council to assemble. And he brought Paul down and placed him before them. Uh, In Acts 23, uh, we start with Paul being brought before the Jewish high council by the Romans. Uh, Paul pleads his innocence, but is struck as he gives testimony, which is illegal to do, um, to strike someone under the law. It's illegal to strike someone as they give testimony, which kind of uh, uh, speaks to the integrity of the the high priest. Well, yeah, the the high priests are not the most, well, especially because I think that you you have to be a Sadducee, right? To be the high priest. At this point still? I'm not sure. I, I believe that, don't quote me on that, listeners, but I believe that's the case, is the high priest was a Sadducee, uh, and they take the law even less serious. Well, the, the Pharisees take the law really seriously, the Sadducees overly take seriously. It, yeah, the Sadducees uh, don't really care as much. Yes, they're, they're very theologically liberal, the Sadducees. <laughs> it's true. Um, the, the high priest Ananias is is spoken of actually extra biblically. Uh, in Josephus's uh, historical account as a greedy and terrible high priest, specifically like an extra greedy and terrible one. Uh, this is the guy who's uh, overseeing this uh, council here. Uh, and Ananias actually dies uh, just before the sacking of Jerusalem at the hands of his own people. 
Uh, so we have we have that historical not account. A, not a great, not a priest. great dude. Uh, Paul tells off the high priest, but then backtracks, realizing and remembering that scripture says to not speak evil of the ruler of your people in Exodus 22, which was last week. hey There you go. Paul then appeals to the Pharisees in the council, saying that he's concerned with the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And this would have grabbed the Pharisees' attention, because uh, if you remember the Pharisees, like we just talked about, uh, they were the very conservative, and I'm not using these terms politically. I'm just talking about in, in their relationship to to change and their view of the law. We're very conservative, hyper conservative in this circumstance where they they significantly added to the law. But the Pharisees were, they believed in an afterlife and they were very concerned with how to get to that afterlife and what happened in the afterlife. The Sadducees were the exact opposite of that. They didn't believe in in an afterlife. And uh, with Jesus in uh, in Luke, we probably covered this in one of the previous weeks, but they kind of confront Jesus right. and they try to trick him. And uh, well, who, you know, who gets... Um, who's married to the the woman yeah. who's had seven husbands. Who's had seven husbands in the afterlife. They're, they're trying to trick him into saying there is no afterlife, essentially. And was it... Well, actually, I'm sorry. I'll let you finish really quick. No, I, I might say something that's dumb. Well, no, I might say something that's dumb. So let me, you finish the, okay. the chapter and then I'll, I'll yeah, jump yeah. in. Um, but this grabs the Pharisees' attention and they actually side with Paul because Paul says he's concerned with hope for the resurrection of the dead. Specifically, that is Jesus Christ, um, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Paul is then taken back to the barracks after essentially the uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's a fight that breaks out. Um, so he's taken out of that environment. Uh, that night, the Lord speaks to Paul, telling them him that he will give this same testimony in Rome, which would have been a comforting thing. Right. Paul could have been like, oh, I'm about to die. Like, this is a crazy situation. Him being able to give the same testimony in Rome means that he's going to live through this. Hey, you're going to die, but it'll be in Italy. But so. it'll be huh? yeah. a little nicer. Italy is nice. We went to Rome in October. It was, it was a good time. Um, the next day, the Jews plot to kill Paul in an ambush. And Paul's nephew hears about it. Uh, he comes to Paul and warns him and the Romans about the ambush. Paul is given a full military escort to Caesarea so that Felix, the governor, can decide what to do about Paul's charges. Felix decides to wait for Paul's accusers to show up to be able to hear both sides. There you but go. What, what was your, uh, your thought I was about trying the to remember and Sadducees? I was trying to remember. It's Peter who is standing before the Sanhedrin earlier in Acts. And he's uh -huh. the one who's like, oh yeah, it's uh, guys, this is about the resurrection of the dead. And then he just plays them off each other and because they start arguing and they eventually yeah. release him. So I was just trying to remember if it was Peter or Paul. And then for a split second, I was like, that's not this story, right? And so that's why I was like, let me let him finish because maybe that's what's about to happen. But then I remembered, no, because Paul stays in custody. So, you know, it's- The resurrection of the dead's a big deal. Yeah. It's Between late. the Sadducees and Pharisees. It's been a long work day, listeners. Sometimes I have brain farts when that happens, but what are you going to do? It's all right. All right. Well, the last chapter that we're going to go over today for the New Testament is uh, Paul is brought before Felix, who is the governor of Judea. Uh, there are many charges brought against him, but when Paul is given the chance to speak, he offers this defense. Uh, he says, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship and neither in the temple 
did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone causing a riot, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that in accordance with the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law, as well as is written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that they shall certainly be that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a a blameless conscience both before God and before other people, always. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who, so I I guess I didn't pick up up on this before, but it's the same group that's been driving him around recently. Mm. Oh, crazy. Those guys suck. Uh, Who ought to have been present before you and have been bringing charges if they should have anything against me, or else have these men themselves declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council, other than in regard to this one declaration which I shouted while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So that's the defense that Paul gives. But the interesting aside at the end is it says, but Felix, having a quite accurate knowledge of the way, adjourned them saying, when Lysis comes down, I will decide your case. Uh, And so here's where we find out. We find a little bit more about Felix. He has a Jewish wife. And so I I feel like if he knows a lot about the way, it means his wife is either super against it or she's super for it. So Mm -hmm. who knows which one of those is true? I like to think that she's for it. You know, maybe we'll meet Felix's wife in heaven one day. Uh, And so... He keeps Paul in relative comfort and he discusses the faith. Um, I do love that. It basically, it says when Paul starts talking about righteousness and self-control and the final judgment, Felix is like, okay, enough of that. Whoa there. I don't want to, we don't want to get too crazy with living a moral life. Whoa there, Paul. And so he sends Paul away, um, but he still brings him back and it says that they talk pretty frequently. Uh, eventually after two years, Felix is replaced as governor and Festus takes over. Um, and so yeah, Felix basically not a great guy. I mean, he's he's good in the sense of he doesn't like execute Paul or anything like that. But he basically is just kind of curious to hear a little bit about the gospel, but not a ton about the gospel. Yeah, not too much. And then he keeps him in pretty relative comfort and just kicks the can down the road until his term as governor is up and he gives it to someone else. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's a political joke in there somewhere. I don't know if you can find it, but yeah, you know, there's there's something about kicking the can down the road. I guess that, that that happens. But that is the end of our New Testament readings this week. Next week we'll pick it up and we'll see what Paul says to Festus. And spoiler alert to a couple other people as well, because the trial is a uh, it's a long road to Rome. I guess we'll say that. But we're going to finish up Acts going that direction. Uh, but before we wrap up our Bible study portion today, Hunter has some stuff on the Psalms and Proverbs that we read this week. Uh, We're starting in Psalm 19. I just have a couple quick observations on these Psalms. This is another Psalm of David. Uh, Verses one through seven are a beautiful picture of God's status as creator being revealed through his creation. Any verse that talks about that, I'm thinking. It's a good um, time. Romans 120, tons of the other Psalms. I I think Psalm eight is another good example, but something about that language is so beautiful that and it's so true. You you walk outside, especially away from a city, away from man-made stuff. Go look at the stars. Go walk up a mountain. I don't know. Just go out into the wilderness and you're like, 
Wow. There's a there's a John Piper sermon I heard years ago where he's talking about like the the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And he's talking like he's trying, trying to like drive it home. And he's like, it means like God's glory is, is shouting at us through the clouds and through the great expanse mm. and through the oat. It's kind of, it's like, I love the way he said it. we used it for a bumper one time just nice. because like just yeah. the wonder of the glory of God. So no, it's a great point. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. We were I was probably 15. Uh we'd gone as a family to Oahu, um, which is one of the Hawaiian islands. And on the uh, most far Western side, there's this big mountain. And uh, we, we went to uh, the other side of the mountain. There's no development or anything over there. So the, the lights from the rest of the islands, because you're on the last island in the chain, are um, completely blocked by this mountain on the east side of you. Ah, And to the west, there's ocean until you hit Japan. So there is the least amount of light pollution you can imagine because you're so far away from it. It's almost like you're in the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And we slept out on the beach there that night. And you can look up pictures. I forget the name of the beach, but you can look up pictures from that. Um, you you could just see the details of this band of the Milky Way galaxy, you know, just like stretched across the sky and billions and billions of stars. And you can even see the little smudge of Andromeda, <laughs> you know, it's the craziest. It looks like a Hubble telescope picture or something. Yeah. It's insane. Well, I guess that's a good reminder point too, because when you read heavens, mm-hmm. uh, that word carries some extra weight or baggage, I guess, yeah. where sometimes we think of heaven as only being um, like the dwelling, the spiritual dwelling place of God. Uh, but a lot, most of the time in the in the Bible, when we see the word heavens, it's, yeah. it, it just means the sky. The sky, Like yeah. the sky declares the glory mm-hmm. of God. So I, no, I love the way you're describing it there. Yeah. But verses uh, seven through 11, it outlines how much more the way of the Lord is valuable above the things and ways of the world. What a great reminder. I'm going to read that real quick. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's great that that rhymes in English. It's Um, It's one of those rare occasions. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. I love, I love that That's passage. That's beautiful. I mean, just your dulcet tones as well. Just really, just really do it justice. I got to say. It's just such a great reminder. I mean, I, um, I spent some time between jobs at churches where I was working in the live entertainment industry. And you really get to see behind closed doors, some of the things that the world has to offer. Sure. Lots of, lots of drugs, lots of kind of, uh, mindless sexual relationships and, um, not that I partook in those things. I'm just saying you you see those things all around you. And it is so true that following uh, the law of the Lord in our new test, our new covenant context, it's the law of love, not just the, the mosaic law, right. but um, is so much more fulfilling and fruitful than chasing 
you know, dopamine hits and chasing the, the feeling that drugs give you and mm -hmm. all, all of this stuff. Like it's all worthless compared to the satisfaction, uh, fulfillment and meaning in following the Lord. No, great, great Which, reminder. Also, that'll be my application for today. So I'll, I'll leave that. Oh, all right. Leave that right there since it was already there. Um, psalm 20, this is a psalm of blessing over another person. It's a petition for the Lord to answer and save the faithful person. Um, one thing to note is the way the word save is used in this context. And this is a good note just for the whole Old Testament is that uh, the word salvation or saved or saves takes on multiple meanings depending on where you're at in scripture. I think a lot of times in our, our kind of new covenant, new Testament life context, we think of salvation as simply that moment you go from uh, unsaved to having your ticket to heaven. And right. the more you can get out of that mindset, the, the more scripture will make sense. That's, that's not, that's clearly not what's in, in uh, sight here. We're not talking, we're talking about salvation from uh, a literal temporal thing that's happening to a person, you know, like it's a, some literal trial that's happening in right. their life. Ultimately this is fulfilled in our, our, eternal salvation, you know, but that's not what's in sight here in, in the Psalms. Um, and even when we get into the new Testament, salvation gets used in the same way we talk about sanctification and glorification. Like salvation can mean all of those same things without getting too far into it. But. Yeah. And, and I, well, I, th I think you brought up a good point as well, that just because it, it doesn't mean this in this context, doesn't mean it doesn't point to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so like David, when he's writing, is he's specifically talking about deliver, deliverance, salvation from his enemies in this moment. Uh -huh. um, but obviously that word is used very intentionally later on because it's it's pointing to the, the greatest salvation of, of all time, which mm -hmm. is of course our salvation from sin. Uh, and now, yeah, you're right. It's hard in English because we pretty much only use the word salvation for that. Yeah. We kind of, we use other words for other things, but it's not meant to be this unique thing in the sense of it's the only thing that's yeah. ever like this that happened. It's meant to be the culmination of the idea yeah. of being saved from of anything. De deliverance from, from trial, in our case, deliverance from the punishment of sin. Right. right. You can think of it as being used the same way that word deliverance is used. I'm just realizing now too, that my favorite Psalm, Psalm 22 is coming up. I don't get to share it this oh, week. That would be next week. I'm sorry. It's the Psalm that Jesus quotes while he's on the cross, specifically in, in the, in Mark's account. Yeah. It's a sad one, but a good one. Yes. Um, sorry. Proverbs four. Uh, I would have loved to have that one. That's so much fun. I would have gone through that one in such great detail because <laughs> it's, it's so cool. Um, a wonderful prophecy of, of the Lord. You guys get to hear about it next week. Uh, Proverbs four here written from the perspective of a father to his sons. Uh, it's generally a call to get as much wisdom as you can get. Uh, wisdom here, one thing to note, uh, and elsewhere in Proverbs, is personified as a woman. Here's a, a passage. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. If you're reading that and you're like, why are we talking about a woman all of a sudden? Wisdom is personified as a woman in Proverbs. It's called poetry. You know, yes, give, it a, but, give it a try sometime. No, I'm just saying, keep that in mind. Um, as 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 you're reading through the proverbs, uh, I just shared my application as part of 
Psalm 19. But Evan, do you have an application I for guess, today? You know, yeah. You know, let's not do the jingle. We don't need the jingle sorry, this week. So, I'm just going to... Sorry. Oh, you're fine. Uh, I'm I can gonna, just sing it. Bum, 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 bum. So yeah, my application this week <laughs> is... Uh, I think just going through the the old covenant and um, the the law that's being set up, I, I was struck by the because I wrote it in my notes. I almost expounded more on it, and I thought, no, that's actually a great application point. Um, the idea of Yahweh is holy, God is holy, mm. and that when we worship Him, we should worship Him with our best. Yeah. And so, in in the concept of the sacrificial system, what does that mean? It means if if you can afford a bull you're grabbing the best bull that you have in your herd. If you if you the best you can do is a sheep or a goat, that's okay but you're giving your best. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it, w- it would have been wicked for someone who had herds of cattle to go buy two turtle doves and sacrifice those to the Lord. Even though that offering would have been acceptable for someone else, it would not have been acceptable for that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in a similar way, it's a reminder for us to ask ourselves always, are we giving God our best? Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless of what that nature is, when, when we serve God, are we doing it with a thankful heart? Are we doing it with... Um, the desire to do it with excellence. When we when we give God money, is it one of those things where it's like an aside, like, okay, yeah, maybe if I can afford it, or are we prioritizing the idea of like, no, I, I need to show sacrificial love to others with, with 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 my money, with my talents, with my time, with all those different things. And so a simple one, but yeah, I think it's a reminder that even though so much of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ and therefore not applicable in the sense of we don't need to go find a bowl to sacrifice. Yeah. The principles behind it are oftentimes very much applicable to us today, mm. specifically the idea of God is holy. God deserves our best. Are we giving him our best? All right. Well, like I said, at the top of the show, we had two questions come in today. So let's take a moment to answer those. Okay. So question one, it says this quick question. At the end of the plague of darkness, Moses tells Pharaoh that he will not see his face again. But then how does he tell him about the 10th plague? Uh, probably a dumb question, but it's stumping me. Uh, and then she also says, I loved hearing about how y'all as Christians today celebrate the Passover. That's honestly never occurred to me before. I've never understood it until this podcast. Thank you so much for making the Old Testament make sense. Um, that is that is one of my great passions is I think there's I think there's a lot of truth in the Old Testament that we, uh, I think we read it wrong <laughs> or we just mm-hmm. kind of ignore it. And so I do think it's it's great to, um, I think the two the two things that we always have to balance are what would this have meant to the people who read it? And then the other thing is, how is Christ shown in this? Uh, because if the road to Emmaus story is true and all of the old covenant points to Christ, that means that means all the old covenant points to Christ. Uh, and sometimes we get way too far on the, what does this mean for the people in the moment? And we just don't, we ignore any sort of sign of Christ or the new covenant. Uh, but sometimes we go to the other extreme where it's just all about the new covenant and we don't even think about what would this have meant mm-hmm. to the people back then. So I think you balance those two things and you get a really full, rich reading of the Old Testament. But that's not what you asked. Sorry, question. Yeah. Um, based on that, when, when this person is saying... Uh, I loved hearing about how y'all as Christians today celebrate the Passover. What what are they talking about? Uh, May I believe this is the episode that Megan was on. Okay. So Megan is, uh, she's on staff. She's also the most super into uh, like, I don't know what you even call that, like Christian Judaism. But She's like, learning Hebrew. Yeah. She's learning Hebrew. She's super into Wants it. Wants to go live keep, in Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah she, she's yeah. keeping up on all the culture stuff. And we so she Megan. celebrates Passover with friends. And so she was oh, talking about cool. that. Yeah. So they fun, fun fact about that. Christians continued to celebrate Passover uh, until the fourth century. Just 
they and that's when completely it... continue. Yeah, I, I believe at the Council of Nicaea, one of the tiny little footnotes is like, ah, eh, you guys don't need to do that anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. So I, I've yeah, I've thought about it as well. Like I've done a couple of Passover dinners uh-huh. in my life. I, I have too. It's not like a regular celebration thing, but I, I definitely think. Um, we can take it too far where it almost becomes this like glorification of Judaism over anything else. But I, I also think uh-huh. it's a really healthy thing for us as Christians to um, like the whole Bible is God's truth. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a bad thing to reflect on what those different holidays are celebrating and, and think about God's faithfulness in the midst of those things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but that's not the question you asked. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Uh, so I'm trying to remember how we phrased it last week because we might've we might have said it in a misleading way on accident, um, but here's what I think might have happened. Uh, so Pharaoh and Moses are talking back and forth, and Pharaoh declares, like, go away. I never want to see you again. And Moses says, you will never see me again. And then the, it's a chapter break. And then it says, and the Lord said to Moses, here's the last plague. And then Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh the last plague. Um I think this is one of those things where sometimes the chapter and verse system of the Bible is mm-hmm. super helpful because it's it's instead of being like, hey, Hunter, I was reading in Isaiah, um, you know, that part in the middle. <laughs> like we actually yeah. have a chapter, a chapter system where we can point to like, oh yeah, this chapter, this verse, all those different things. One of the ways where that can lead us astray though, is sometimes we think of those as being literal closing of moments. And mm-hmm. then the next chapter is the next scene. Yeah. Um, that's not the case. Remember that when the Bible was written, they didn't write it with a chapter and verse system. Uh, and so I think what, what's possible, what happened there is, because this is very easy for me to miss as well, is we think of that as being almost a separate day. When in reality, what happened is Moses and Pharaoh are having this conversation. In that moment, God reveals this is going to be the last plague. And then Moses tells him, I think is what's happening in that moment there. So um, that one's a little bit kind of an easier one to answer. Um, where it gets more difficult is Moses actually does see Pharaoh again. And so mm-hmm. the, and so this wasn't in the question, but I want to talk about this for a little bit as well. Um, because after the death of the firstborn, it says that Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron to him in the middle of the night. Uh, and he tells them, get out, take everything and get out. So what does that mean? So the, 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 there's a couple different possibilities there. Uh, when Moses says you can never, you will never see my face again. That could be referencing the fact that the next time you see me, it'll be night. Uh, Cause the, it, hmm. it, it's very specifically points out that it's the middle of the night when Pharaoh calls him there. Uh, I, I should say too, these are things that are just kind of off the top of my head. So mm-hmm. if you're like a biblical scholar and you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, what an idiot. Wow, I'm so sorry. Wrong. Feel free to email me. Um, please don't call me an idiot. Just be like, Hey, you're wrong. And here's why, but you know, one don't be a jerk. Um, idea I just had reading this is maybe Moses is just wrong. Is he speaking as if he's speaking the words of the Lord? That's or true. is he just speaking as himself? Because if he's just speaking as himself, he could totally just be wrong. That's true. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. I, I have to go back and read the passage specifically. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think too. it says it's the word of the Lord. Yeah. While you do your answer, I'll go read the passage and I'll go take a look okay, at cool. it and see what happens there. Uh, the other thing it could be is when it says you won't you won't be seeing me again. It could be meaning in this context. So every uh-huh. time that got that not God, every time that Pharaoh has seen Moses uh, before this, it has been specifically, hey, this plague is coming. Let my people go. Um, Obviously, the next time Moses isn't declaring a plague, there's not even a let my go people moment. It's just Pharaoh saying, get out. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a very different kind of meaning. So it it could be interpreted that way, but hopefully that answers your question in in that sense. Yeah. The other question we got uh, while Evan does goes back and reads the passage. 
is Hello, Let's Read the Bible Crew. I've always found the idea of dying immediately and immediately being in heaven fairly logical. I'd like your take. Is that how it works? In quotes. In Luke 23, 43, the position of the comma has caused debate. I tell you, today you'll, you'll be with me in heaven, or in, sorry, in paradise or in the garden, um, versus I tell you today, comma, you'll be with me in, in the garden. Um, I also heard a preacher recently refer to Exodus 3, 6 as an early proof that through the use of I am rather than I was or I am God who your fathers worshipped, or similar, that this is a clear indication that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive in heaven. Thoughts, I appreciate. It's very open-handed. After all, when we fall asleep, we wake up in an instant later, even though it's been hours. So if I die and go to heaven right now versus in however many years when Jesus returns, I won't be able to tell the difference. Sorry, long question. (laughs) That's the end of the question. Basically, uh, this person is asking, what happens when you die? Do you immediately go to be with, with Christ? Um, do we wake up and it's Christ returning? Uh, I have some thoughts. There's kind of a general historical view on this, and there's some uh, biblical, maybe proof texts. Uh, Evan and I were talking about this earlier. But there's a, there's a couple spots to look. One, in, in Luke 16, we have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And it is a parable. We need to keep that in mind. But it's also the only parable where we have, um, where someone is given a name in Luke. We, we went over this actually the last time I was on the podcast. Um, but in this parable, there's this poor man named Lazarus. There's a rich man. When they die, Lazarus goes to be at Abraham's side or at Abraham's bosom um, is what the text says. And the rich man goes to Hades, which is this Greek kind of general underworld. So we're borrowing language from the Greek mythos and using it to describe um, a holding place for the the damned. Yeah, there's no three headed dog guarding this one. No, no, no. So. We're we're Jesus is borrowing Greek language to describe something that I think he's saying is true, uh, and there's a chasm between these two places. And I think uh, the best way to understand it would be these are two real places that Jesus is describing. Uh, he he even says that angels take Lazarus away immediately to be at Abraham's side. Um, so it's, it's kind of leading his spirit to the place where God is, as, as Jesus says later in Luke, uh, in paradise. Uh, or if you understand that, that word kind of also means garden. It's, it's the place where God is with his people. Um, and then in, in Revelation 20, we have a description of Hades being cast into the lake of fire. So when Jesus returns, He's taking death and Hades, which is that same word that's used in Luke 16, and casting it into fire. This is the second death. So at judgment, the those who are in Christ and those who are damned are resurrected. And then uh, those who choose not to be a part of the kingdom of God are cast into the lake of fire. What that means and all the specifics, that's a whole other... Um, that's a whole other very that's long a whole, podcast. a whole other very long podcast. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I think what that points to in the, the classic, we, we read this, uh, Tertullian, who's an early church writer, kind of popularized this idea that 
right now what exists is there is a, a, a place for those who are who die in Christ, they get to go be with the Lord, right? Like Paul says, to be out of the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, there is a, a place, we get another uh, kind of the, the Hades place. We get another image of that in Second Peter 2. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, uh, or Hades, you could understand that the same way, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment is what it says. So there's a place where spirits who have rebelled against God, whether human or angelic, are kept until the day of judgment. And then there's a final resting place, the second death for those who are uh who have rebelled against God, and then the the remade and glorified heaven and earth, the new creation for those who are joined to Christ. Um, all of that to sum that up, I, I the final resting place, the final hell, the lake of fire, however that's described. I would say right now, either no one is in it, or it doesn't exist. And I would currently. Be and I would be in the later camp, I think, that it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, it doesn't exist yet. That's a thing that is a, a reality in its fullest sense after judgment, but there's currently a holding place. If we take the parable of Lazarus and the rich man literally, there's like a chasm that people can talk across. I don't think that's, I think that's a, a literary device. I don't. I yeah, well, say that that's the, literally the parable true. is really difficult because it's the only parable that Jesus ever gives a name to anyone. Yeah, so that that's where people will interpret this as being no, this is a real story that Jesus is telling, and uh -huh. that's the reason that you could point to is saying like it's it's very different from all of his other parables in in uh -huh. that sense. So, but but I mean, the, yeah, the answer is who in knows? the same way too. Like it, I, I pointed out earlier in Revelation twenty, it talks about death and Hades being cast into right. Uh, the lake of fire, which is that same word that's used in the parable. Um, so I think, yes, th there's a there's a temporary place that we, as those who are in Christ, will be with the Lord until the day of judgment, will return with him um, back to the earth. The earth will be made new. We will enjoy what it calls in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem with the Lord forever. We had this really cool conversation, me and Evan, this week about what the glorified earth looks like someday oh, yeah. and and all of the stuff we get to do and yeah it's hard to comprehend on this side of eternity i as a kid i freaked myself out by trying to comprehend <laughs> eternity like legitimately had like nightmares and had to go like i was like six or seven or something mm -hmm. so i had to go sleep in like my parents room or something because i was just freaking out but anyway that shows like just when you're a nerd the stuff that freaks you out yeah. there you go um no yeah i think it's great i always recommend this book when topics of like heaven come out but um it's called heaven by randy alcorn but mm -hmm. he does a very good job of giving kind of a the points of here's what scripture says here's how i interpret that mm. also here's my conjecture based off of scripture but he's very clear when he's doing that and so i think it's a, it's a great book because it kind of gives you a biblical base of what kind of do we know for certain uh -huh. or at least what we think we know for certain and then also like it it, it kind of gives you the space to dream a little bit which i love i think that's one of the healthiest things to do about heaven is kind of dream about mm -hmm. um how will god be glorified in that way through through what we do so uh to get back to the first question uh mo yeah moses isn't speaking necessarily for the lord when he says that so yeah. he could have just been wrong he could have just been wrong um also as i read through the passage i think another thing that could that's really easy to trip you up is god says say in the presence of all the people and then gives him the the thing and then moses says it and then it says 
but he departs from the presence of Pharaoh. So even the way it's it's framed, it seems like Moses leaves, goes and talks to the people, uh-huh. um, when in reality, what he's probably doing is he's talking to all of the people that are there, assembled in the court, mm. as opposed to going out, like, in, you know, broadly speaking. So it's, it's, it's set up in a little bit of a confusing way, but hopefully that answers your question. All right, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.